thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. What makes a crime a crime? It's not always as obvious as you might think. Both Socrates and Jesus were, after all, treated as criminals. And what makes a real criminal? Here's Dr. Kyle Treiber from the Institute of Criminology at the University of Cambridge speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. There are thousands of factors that we know are associated with crime involvement, and some of those are individual, some of those are biological, others are psychological. Um, but we also have many, many social aspects, environmental factors that, that we know predict crime. And I think once we are understanding more and more how not only how many factors, but how interactive those factors are, we talk about multifactorial effects. So, for example, it's not going to be one gene. Uh, we have found uh, very little evidence of, of any single gene having a huge influence on, on criminal behavior. In fact, there seem to be many, many genes involved in any kind of, of outcome, physical or behavioral. And of course, behavior is a whole other dimension. Um, similarly, there are also very, very many environmental effects that are, that are interacting with those genetic effects. And so ultimately, what we have are very small influences across many factors. No easy answers then. But we're trying to throw light on this subject, touching on religion and the law, bygone punishments, and then bringing it right up to date. With me are Professor Lorraine Gelsthorpe and Caroline Lansky of Cambridge Institute of Criminology and Julian Hargreaves, Senior Research Fellow here at the Wolf Institute. Welcome all. So, three criminologists and a theologian. You can probably tell I'm quite new to podcasting because I brought a book uh, with me uh, with the intriguing title of Bygone Punishment. It's a book from the late 19th century written by a uh, British writer called William Andrews. And the book presents a discussion, a history of cruel and unusual punishment. And uh, it's rather a macabre book, in fact. Um, and some of the uh, punishments weirdly reflect the crime, uh, one being boiling to death, which was a late medieval punishment for poisoning. So I suppose the idea is that if a man poisons another man's soup, he himself will become soup. Uh, elsewhere in the book, there are three different types of hangings. And I think my personal favourite, the Halifax gibbet, uh, a 16th century punishment and a forerunner of the French guillotine without the guillotine's elegance and economy of design. The Halifax gibbet was a device with a large blade which was pulled up by two horses and the unfortunate convict set underneath it. So there was a famous local phrase at the time, from hell, Hull and Halifax, Lord deliver us. And uh, whilst the 
device had a rather fearsome reputation. I think people viewed it uh, very negatively because it was used for such minor crimes, the fairly minor crime of theft. I suppose locals at the time would not really know where they would end up after being victim of the Halifax gibbet, either hell or heaven, because of the rather minor nature of, uh, of the crime of theft. But one thing they could be sure is that they would arrive there without their heads. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And said with great joy by a Lancastrian, I think. Um, so let's start with the question of what is crime? What makes a crime a crime? I think it's a very common question. I don't think a crime these days is, is a sin, although at certain parts of history it's certainly been seen as a sin. But yes, it's a very good question. Do we mean an infraction of the law? Do we take the law as the starting point? But if we do, then we have to ask questions. Well, whose law? Who makes the law? And does everybody agree with the law? Do we think instead perhaps of crime as a norm infraction? Is it a, 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 a contravention of some social rules? If so, whose social rules? Who set the rules? And what happens if somebody contravenes the rules? And how decisions? How are decisions made as to who has contravened the rules? Is it all a matter of power politics and, and so on? What's your view then, Lorraine? So you set it out both in terms of custom and terms of legislation. Where, where, where do you uh, uh, see it? I think it falls somewhere in between, probably, with the law setting what is seen to be a consensual view, but we know that there are some questions around the edges. So if we take the use of cannabis, for example, legally that would be seen as a crime, but we know that many, very very many people would not see it as a crime at all if it's for uh, personal use. And there are other grey areas of crime too. I think also we have to put the law in social context because we can see how the, the conception of crime has and definitions of crime have changed over time. I think it was until 1964 that attempted suicide was seen as a crime and people could be punished for having attempted uh, suicide. And we will be aware, of course, of, of changes in relation to homosexuality o over time. So that the social context, I think, influences <clears throat> the law. Sometimes the law is behind changes in public opinion and social attitudes. Sometimes, in relation to homosexuality, for example, the law was just ahead of public opinion. In your work, Caroline... What examples are there where the, the law has either been ahead or, or behind the social construct? Um, I, I think the example of cannabis um, smoking is quite an interesting one. Um, we see when we look at different countries and different cultures that cannabis is seen differently. So, for example, it has now been legalised in a number of different states within the US. Um, and so we can see in, in, in that um, debate that's going on within the US between different states, those which have um, made cannabis legal and, and licensed and those which haven't, um, how the law itself then becomes a sort of a focal point for, for discussion and movement. Um, and, I mean, in our um, often we see that um, in the UK um, we may well be developing practices that we take from across the pond. Um, so certainly I think in, in terms of analysis of cannabis and cannabis use in the US, we may be seeing some softening of positioning um, towards kind of 
cannabis use in the UK. Um, so I think that, that sort of gives a, a helpful indication of how the law provides both an opportunity for some social norms to be adjusted, um, but also um, we, we see where social norms themselves um, become ones which seem to be out of kilter with the law, that the law is then adjusted in relation to them. So Lorraine has given the example of um, homosexuality. In my work, which has been looking um, at um, the experiences, well, one of my research projects has been looking at the experiences of children of prisoners' families. The debate has been looking at whether, in fact, um, sentencing of, of people who are parents or primary caregivers um, is appropriate when they've got dependent children. Um, and so mitigating factors, um, taking into account um, what sentencing disposal might be decided upon, noting that somebody might be a parent, um, has has become more recently something that the courts have taken into account. So this is a, a development, if you like. So a parent who has committed a crime and has been punished for that crime, in the sentencing, the judge will now take into account if they are the primary carer. Is that yes. right? Yes. So that the idea has been that um, punishment traditionally um, has been the state against an offender. So it's a binary perception. But researchers identified that actually that decision to punish can have um, negative consequences for the dependents and the family networks of the, that person who's been convicted. And therefore, um, the debate has broadened and policy has changed to reflect well, to recognise it, actually, when no, no man is an island. But I think I would want to add that while policy has changed, practice maybe hasn't. There, there mm. is a, a, a rhetoric of policy and research evidence on how far the courts actually take into account family background, whether or not there are small children at home or whatever. I, I think reality is, is very different uh, and certainly... Uh, strong evidence to suggest that sentences are not taking such factors into account as much as they should. There are moments, aren't there, where, I mean, the law is meant to be blind, isn't yes. it? So are we expecting too much of our judges if they've got to evaluate the social context of the criminal and the context of the case? Are we just expecting too much? Well, it's certainly an ideal to think that justice should be uh, blind. At the same time, we can't assume that everybody is equal before the law. So taking into account some differences, I think, is hugely important. And family and other caring responsibilities might be one of those areas where responsibilities should be taken into account. But without discriminating against those who have, who don't have uh, children or caring responsibilities. I think we need to set this uh, particular debate in the context of hoping that the government would uh, produce policies which which meant that we used imprisonment much less than is currently the case. We are a country which uses a high rate of imprisonment, much higher than other European countries, even though the demographics and industrial complex is very uh, similar. I think we're the highest in Western Europe, aren't we? we? Are. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Julian, isn't this a bit of opening up a can of worms here if we uh, start going down the route of evaluating the social context of, 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 the, of the crime and the criminal? When, uh, when we think about the legal framework for criminality, we're often thinking about the capacity of an individual to commit a crime. And I suppose, therefore, there's an idea that someone's 
personal responsibility, personal culpability is is front and centre. It feels to me like within criminology that that's not always the case. Uh, it's more usual to think about uh, the societal forces bearing down on that individual. So I suppose in a way I see a divide between the legal and uh, social considerations of crime. And as criminologists, where do you see criminology bridging that divide between the legal and the social? Well, I think criminology, those people within criminology who are interested in sentencing might say that the sentencing framework that we have set by the Sentencing Council uh, and, and enshrined in legislation, the 2003 Criminal Justice Act, creates a framework which employs consistency in approach to individual offenders, but then allows for some difference depending on individual circumstances, whether that is to do with culpability, levels of remorse, and or other responsibilities. In, indeed, I think the, the sentencing provisions also allow for general deterrence uh, and so on. Mm. I think also um, it's relevant for criminology and uh, and criminologists to think about um, how crime is defined within particular contexts um, and to draw attention to um, wider social harms that might not be identified specifically by um, the law um, Mm -hmm. and to... um, so, so if you like to step back a little bit from that legal definition of crime within mm-hmm. any particular setting um, and offer, offer a, a, a reflections on what the consequence of that particular law is within that society. Mm-hmm. What does it do? Does it criminalise particular groups? Does it um, recognise victims sufficiently? Um, and so there is a, a, an, mm-hmm. a, a function for criminology to stand back a little bit from sort of those, those narrow legal definitions and reflect on the social consequences of them. So we've touched a little bit on the family context and, and parenting and so on. Julian, what about the, the religious context? I'm thinking in particular with the Muslim communities, which is something that you know a lot about, where, where kind of religious law, if you like, conflicts with um, civil legislation. And, and that community, and not only the Muslim community, can feel quite um, under pressure because mm. of that. So there have been uh, heated debates around law and British Muslim communities, uh, to say the least. Uh, I suppose we've had now nearly 20 years of terrorism policy, um, legislation and police practice, which has been almost constantly criticised during that time. Uh, for some academics, uh, it's, uh, it's now the case that the whole of the British Muslim population has been criminalised. Um, I think that argument is compelling to a point, If we look at the law governing stop and search under Schedule 7, and that governs stops and searches at airports, at ports and at international railway stations, I think there's a very strong argument there that this law has discriminated against Muslim people who can be stopped uh, without any reasonable suspicion of having undertaken a crime. In terms of Sharia law and civil law, again, there's a, a lot of debate. Um, And I think I can understand really both sides of that debate. So the the sort of the positive case made for Sharia law in the UK is that it can provide a form of mediation between two parties and that that mediation can take the pressure off the English courts. The more negative case made, of course, is that Sharia law 
offers a parallel system of law uh, and that that might further marginalise Muslim communities. I think there have also been concerns around the role of women's rights and equality within the courts. Um, so I, I understand there to be a, a mixture of arguments and I see both sides actually as being fairly compelling. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. This week, I'm joined by Lorraine Gelsthorpe, Caroline Lansky and Julian Hargreaves. And we're discussing what makes a crime a crime. I'd like to offer a reflection from the US president, Donald Trump. He said just a few months ago, a crime is not a crime. With reference to the affair that he had with the playgirl. So at what point does a crime not become a crime? At what point is it okay to break the law? There are examples, of course, where uh, the law turns a blind eye to things. I think you said that, Rain, earlier. Um, but what about those times when people feel it's okay to break the law for the greater good of society? Well, I'm not sure that I would agree with the uh, president of the USA, if I may Well, you're disagree. very bold. You're very bold. Um, because... Um, I, I think he was ignoring the social harm uh, in disrupting a relationship. I don't know the context in which he said that, of course, and I don't know the details of, of the affair, but it's a fairly provocative uh, statement, uh, I think. But what it does do in, is, is undermine, doesn't it? Not just undermine the law, but the whole question of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. If it's okay for me to break the law whoever I am. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to tease out because there are plenty of instances, aren't there, where the law has been broken, but why the society perhaps has accepted it. So if we're thinking about these blurred lines between what's legal and what's moral, what's lawful and what's fair, I think a good case to think about is the case of John Letts and Sally Lane. They were convicted recently um, of uh, funding terrorism um, their son, Jack Letts, had travelled to uh, Syria and uh, his parents were uh, rightly concerned, uh, as you might expect. Uh, and of course, they disagreed with the reasons why he wanted to travel to an ISIS-controlled area. But they were still attempting to support him, uh, to look after him and to persuade him to come back. They had sent him money or they had tried to send him money directly and also indirectly through a contact in the Lebanon. Uh, they'd been warned by the police that trying to send money in this way would trigger an offence under one of the acts of terrorism. And when they tried again and were caught, they were prosecuted. Um, and what we see from the outcome of the trial, I think, is that the jury were compelled at some level to be compassionate towards uh, the defendants, Sally Lanes and John Letts. Um, and in a way, I think I share their empathy. Um, the, the particular law under which they were prosecuted um, has quite an odd test. So for most criminal offences, there is a test that the defendant intended to do the act. In the law governing funding terrorism, uh, there's no test that the defendant intended to support the group in question. Instead, uh, it has to be shown that the defendant reasonably suspects or reasonably should have known that the money would end up in the hands of terrorists. And I think that's a long way from uh, the intentional support of terrorism. And for me, it, it really blurs the line between, between sort of law and morality. 
In the case of um, the parents of Jack Letts, they were prosecuted for three offences, uh, all under the uh, major uh, acts of terrorism. Um, the jury found them not guilty of uh, one substantive charge. Uh, they couldn't reach a decision on the second, and they were uh, found guilty of a third where it was held by the court that they should have had reasonable suspicion that the money they sent to their son would end up in the hands of terrorists. And really, I think that is a long way from the intentional support of uh, terrorist groups. Yes, yes. No, that, that's starting to get really tricky, isn't mm. it? And the whole question of the morality um, and, 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 and the law. I think morality also plays a part in the definition of terrorism, uh, it's been a notoriously tricky concept to define and academia and uh, policy makers have provided us with hundreds of definitions and really li very little agreement, very little consensus around what the definition ought to be. But I think at the heart of it is a value judgment. And um, what I mean by that is that when we think about an act of terrorism, we're thinking about the illegitimate use of uh, warfare or combat. And for it to be illegitimate, that suggests that the person defining it thinks there's a difference between legitimate and illegitimate forms uh, of, uh, of violence. Yes, Caroline. I, I was just, I mean, the, the issue of the relationship between morality and the law is a really interesting one. And of course, the law represents one set of, of morals, if you like, but they're not necessarily the morals that society holds or individuals hold. And often you can see where there is a conflict, a really interest. And, and the law isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily have the moral upper ground all the time. We could take um, examples of, of societies such as South Africa during the apartheid regime where those laws were discriminatory and, and, and explicitly so. And now we would reflect on those and say, well, actually, they weren't morally acceptable. Socially, we feel that those weren't the laws that we recognise as being ones that we would want to adhere to. But also we recognise that maybe those people who broke the law during that time might have been, um, as a consequence of the what I'm going to say, illegitimacy of those laws. So um, I think when we come to talk about the relationship between morality and the law, we need to also think critically about the particular moral framework that any law or set of laws encompasses. So we've touched on the question of morality and, and the law. I wonder, Lorraine, whether you can ex apply that to other areas such as domestic abuse and, and violence against, um, against women within a family. Oh, well, there I think we would have to say that the law was very slow to catch up with public opinion, law and law enforcement uh, practices uh, with uh, rape, serious sexual assault uh, within marriage only being recognised in the 1990s, uh, light years be behind some other uh, countries. And even now, uh, in relation to uh, serious sexual assault or domestic abuse, there are criticisms of the police. I think there's been huge progress in terms of responses uh, to victimisation, uh, but things are not where they should be. There's a, a huge rate of attrition of serious sexual assault cases which go through the police, Crown Prosecution Service, uh, and so on. And there are still experiences of women 
who report that um, they've been turned away by the police because they can't really substantiate the domestic abuse. Lorraine, could I ask you how feminist thought changed things in criminology in the 1960s and 70s? Well, I think there's been huge progress in recognising some of the key precepts of uh, second wave uh, feminism, but there's further to go. Uh, particularly in, in relation to recognising not just gender on its, alo- on its own, but gender in relation to race, ethnicity, age, so on and so forth. So we need to think about intersectionality much more than hitherto. But criminology really began to embrace feminism, or at least nod towards it, in the 1970s, in particular in Britain. It was a slow response, but a steady uh, response, with recognition that criminology was just poorer in all its forms because of an absence of any critical dimension uh, in in relation to uh, gender. And the the initial um, impact of feminism was just look at trends and patterns and recognise victimisation much more. It was also to focus on sentencing and to look at differences in the sentencing of of men and uh, women. And I would say that over time we've seen two distinctive feminist projects which have impacted on criminology. One of them has been a substantive uh, and political project looking at differences in the treatment of men and women, including victims. And the other has perhaps been a methodological project, recognising that women's experiences can perhaps form the basis of uh, research and experiences form a valid knowledge uh, base. Can I ask a contentious question? Did the feminist contribution to criminology reach a a kind of high watermark in the 1970s with the recognition of domestic violence and so on, whereas the current iterations of feminist thinking are just too theoretical? I think it's a good question. I do think that the the impact has continued there, particularly in relation to initiatives regarding violence against women. That's where the main activity is. I I worry myself as a revisionist feminist, I worry uh, a little about the the separatist dimensions of uh, feminist work within criminology and indeed in other social sciences, only wanting to focus on women. And some of my work has certainly revolved around improving things for women in the criminal justice system, but not neglecting men, uh, because men are very human uh, too. And I think that we we need to to look at criminal justice in relation to social justice and human uh, justice as well. But I think feminism within criminology is alive and kicking. Oh, good. Well, that's that's good to hear. I'd like to sort of end this uh, this episode by exploring um, one um, aspect of the Bible. I can't help being a theologian and need to bring it up, which is this question of the cities of refuge. And this was a concept that if um, somebody committed, uh, uh, killed somebody. Um, then to avoid them being caught up by the family and having a sort of um, uh, being punished uh, as a result, they, they fled into a city and there were, I think, six different cities around the whole um, biblical Israel. And then they were safe and they, nobody could do anything to them until um, the case was heard according to the law. Um, and there's some of that that falls into churches today as sanctuaries. 
that you know refugees or others who are trying to escape the police, say sending them home because they haven't received their asylum status, or 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 others who have broken the law. Um, can go into a church and sometimes other places of worship and the police are really reluctant to go in there um, because there's this sense of sanctity and a sense of uh, a a sacred space. I wonder if there's anything to learn from that today um, when there are fundamental questions being asked of the law and the changing the law and whether it's led by the sort of social change or whether it leads social change. Do we need spaces in our society where the law uh, cannot reach those who have committed a crime? I think that's a really interesting idea and I um, am very conscious that the legal provision for holding people in custody before a trial um, is itself under scrutiny for the extent to which it does protect people's rights, it looks after them effectively. There are some really distressing cases of young people who've been held in police custody where things have gone wrong. Um, I don't know of a parallel secular provision, a safe space. I mean we have Um, spaces like women's refuge centres which might provide support for people in times of difficulty but I am not conscious, I'm not aware of of any space that might be for people who've broken the law who can go for help and we see again legal aid being cut back so if we don't have that social support for people um, then we we might question whether in fact as a society we're, we're doing justice by to them by not giving them that opportunity for a bit of space, a bit of protection, a bit of advocacy. So I, I, I think that's a really, really lovely idea. And it depends what we mean by space, in, in a way. We might think of ch- churches or other kinds of buildings, secular uh, buildings. But uh, just springing from, from what's been said, we could also think about helplines, for example, and I'm thinking about uh, paedophile behaviour, paedophilic uh, behaviour in some other European countries. There are helplines, rather like the Samaritans, which people can ring because they don't trust themselves, they want to control themselves, but rather instead we have a very punitive uh, approach. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring this conversation to a close. So my thanks to you all, to Lorraine Gelsthorpe, Caroline Lansky and Julian Hargreaves. Witnesses, you may stand down. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientists.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.